Hello, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm Sarah Bueno, and today you're going to be hearing very little from me. You're actually going to be hearing an entirely different podcast called Back from the Abyss. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is Dr. Craig Heacock, if you listen to the latest episode of Conversations with a Wounded Healer, you heard from Craig, and we talked a little bit about his work and the podcast being one of those things. And I got to tell you, Craig reached out to me and... First of all, the title, Back from the Abyss, caught me right away. And as soon as I went to the webpage, let me tell you what I found. And I was just so intrigued. On the website, it says, how do we find a way out of the darkest depths of despair? Psychiatrist Dr. Craig Heacock hosts a deep dive into powerfully moving stories of hope and healing, recovery and redemption. And I was like, I'm in, listened for a couple minutes to one of the episodes and then got back to him and we connected and decided to do this fun trade and share this with you. So I got to pick this episode that I wanted to share with you and the story that you're about to hear is so incredibly, it's moving, it is, it just, the resonance of it, it just feels so transformative. And not only is the story interesting, the content is interesting, you really care about the person who's telling the story, but also the production quality is pretty awesome. So just saying, I hope you really enjoy Back from the Abyss and you'll consider subscribing to their podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you find your podcasts. So please, without further ado, enjoy Back from the Abyss. Names and some details have been changed in these stories to maintain confidentiality. Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. In this, the 20th episode of Back from the Abyss, I'm going to make my first ask. Not for money or credit card numbers or paywall subscriptions, or for your firstborn or for your left kidney, but for each of you who are finding meaning or hope in these stories to tell one friend or family member about this podcast, or to make one posting on your social media account. For if each of you brought just one listener to BFTA, our audience would double. And if each of you shared these stories with two people, that would triple our reach. And right now, that would be just about the best gift that you, our listeners, could give back to us. Before I introduce this episode, I want to give a special thanks to Chris Johnson, my Back from the Abyss co-conspirator and sound guy. Now normally I do all the content, Chris does all the music and sound, But for this episode, I asked Chris to help with the content editing. He cut one of my favorite parts because he pointed out, dude, it doesn't really fit in with the flow of the story. And he was absolutely right. Back from the Abyss is all about the stories. We are not an interview show or talk show. We are a psychiatric storytelling podcast. And anything that gets in the way of the stories has to go. So... Thank you, Chris, for keeping me on track, not just in this episode, but through this whole project. Each of these 20 episodes has been one of my babies. I've loved every one. Well, in different ways, for different reasons. But this episode might be the most important release to date. As I mentioned in the first episode, I think of these stories as balloons of hope that we are releasing out into the world, not knowing how far they will travel or who they might reach but knowing that each one could change someone forever. If this episode were an actual balloon, 
it would be huge, maybe 20 stories tall, with Christmas lights and glow sticks and dioramas of happy bounding dogs, a huge Pittsburgh Steelers logo, and the Beatles' Here Comes the Sun blaring out of speakers surrounding the giant basket underneath. And there would be Reese's peanut butter cups raining down from underneath the balloon, and you get the picture. It would be a wondrous thing to behold in the sky. Today, with our 20th launch, we hear Mitch's unforgettable story. Mitch was the first person who I worked with in the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD study, sponsored by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Mitch suffered 22 years of severe PTSD after a sexual assault when he was just 15. This is his story of how MDMA was able to reactivate what has been called the inner healer or the psychological immune system. But how might a relatively small and simple molecule like MDMA catalyze such profound healing? Listen on and prepare to hear an amazing journey. When I was 15 years old, I was sexually abused by a, a air quote family friend who was a, a physician, a doctor who, who I trusted. Mm-hmm. I think my family did the, the best that they could at that time. Uh, when I was 15, my, my parents were involved in a extremely bitter and contentious divorce. And my three older brothers had moved away from home. And, you know, I think my, my family did the best that they could under the circumstances. There was, I learned quickly uh, when I was 15 and after that event that the best, again, in air quotes, the best way to, to deal with it was to put out this outward uh, facade that everything was okay. Was, mm-hmm. That happened in the fall of 1995. And If you could act like you were okay. Yeah, if that, you could do that long enough and convincingly enough. Yeah. then maybe things would be okay. Yeah, that, that semester in high school, I, you know, I got straight A's, and that was, uh, yeah, quickly learned, okay, well, must be okay, he's getting straight A's. And, and I think that started the process of me really carrying that shame and that weight and that sadness internally mm-hmm. uh, while trying to keep up this this outward appearance that I was, I was strong and I was okay. And I remember my, right after the incident, my, my family took me to uh, a psychiatrist and it was, it was a male and I was just like, are you, Mm. you know, I mean, again, I think that they were well-intentioned, but it's just like, I don't remember sitting in this office being like, I'm not saying shit to this guy. I'm not opening up. I just remember being very scared and yeah, so you were assaulted by an older male, and then your parents kind of unknowingly take you to an older male therapist. Yeah. Whoops. Yeah. yeah. When did you realize, Mitch, that you were not going to be able to sort of pretend or act your way out of this, that that this was not going to go away. 
I would say a number of years ago, it, I seemed like every day I was waking up and the first thought in my head was that I wanted to, to die, that I wished I, I was dead. And I remember in one of my old houses, there was a like a, a drawstring hanging from what I think was the maybe like an attic pull down in the in the bedroom, and there was a string. And I just remember for for days on end, I would wake up and I would sit there and on my back, and I would look at that, and I would just envision myself um, hanging and dying. And at this point, I had been married. Uh, for a few years, and I, I, I told Beth that I was having these feelings, and she was very helpful and, and supportive, and I think they just got to the point where she encouraged me to go see a, a therapist, so I, I did, and I remember the first time I met therapist, I and this is the extent to which the denial will, will take hold, as I said. Um, she was asking me about why I might have these feelings of wanting to be dead and deep depression. And <laughs> I said, well, you know, just a little bit about me. My parents were divorced. And, oh, by the way, I was sexually assaulted when I was 15. But we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think I have that all, all under control. So I don't, I don't think that that's in any way related. So we don't need to focus on that. And she's very um, patient and very wise. And I think she knew that in time that that would, would come back. And then you know, I had seen her, my, my counselor for a number of years, and just noticed that my my drinking uh, got increasingly uh, out of control. Just this kind of constant pressure to want to be alone, want to want to drink. It, it, I, I found that alcohol yeah, would help calm that that nervous system that, that uh, negative energy that I carried around that, that alcohol could help neutralize that spend a lot of time uh, alone uh, under the disguise of you know working on a project in the garage but really the project in the garage was to see how much I could drink and just be alone and escape mm-hmm. yeah could you drink enough to try to actually calm that nervous system yeah yeah i would i would try you know but again it was this balance of well, i don't want to crumble right i don't want to drink too much where it really becomes an issue and then people start asking me well maybe maybe the drinking is connected to the abuse i didn't i didn't want to have to go down that path so it was drink as much as you could kind of give you that warm blanket kind of feeling, but still be able to get up and Mm -hmm. go to work the next day and Mm -hmm. carry on that outward appearance of everything being okay. Yeah. 
you saw your trauma therapist for maybe four years? Five, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What was most helpful about the work that you did with her? Well, it took us a number of years to really come back to the abuse. We would talk about certain things, and I think we were spending a lot of time really tackling some of the the symptoms, mm-hmm. you know, anxiety and body image issues and depression and things like that. But it took us a while to come back to the actual abuse. And she's a, a proponent of the EMDR. And we tried that and I, I found it to be, uh, I responded well to it helped me try to go back to that abuse, but uh, I found it to be somewhat limited. I just I couldn't go back on to you know, that day as much as I needed to, I don't think, under the EMDR. Yeah. It's like the this trauma is this burning building. It's so hot, everything melts inside, and, and your therapist could kind of take you in the periphery or maybe look at it from different vantage points or sort of put start to put your toe in it, but you just couldn't go into the the deepest. It was just too hot, too awful. Right. Yeah. yeah. And she gave me a lot of good resources, and I, and I still see her to, to this day. And she's been a, an amazing part of the, of the journey. You know, one of the resources that she gave me was the you know, a website called One in Six. And I still remember that. You know, one in six males have been, been sexually abused. I remember her, her and I talking about that. And it didn't... It was like, yeah, I, I get it. But it, it still wasn't enough to, to kind of break through that shame that I'd carried of like, yeah, I, I should have been... I should have known. I should have done more. I should have fought harder. I should have... Mm-hmm. After a few years, your trauma therapist referred you to me, to my outpatient clinic. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. What do you remember about that? That was a bad, a bad time in my in my life. It seemed that I couldn't outrun the the trauma anymore. Uh, my marriage was uh, falling apart. I was drinking excessively. Um, you know, I just was dabbling in pain pills, just kind of anything that I could uh, use to, to kind of numb the feelings. And I remember one night we were laying in, in bed and she just said, you know, I, I feel like I don't even know you. I've been married to you for seven years and I don't, I don't know, know you and I want to know what, what happened to you. Mm-hmm when you were young and I just, I remember laying there being like, I just, I would rather die and share this with, with this person. With the person that you trust the most on the planet. Yeah. You couldn't even share it with her. Yeah. <clears throat> and referred me to, to you, I, I think because of, um, 
largely because of the substance abuse mm-hmm. issues that she she knew I was on a on a bad track with with the drinking and mm-hmm. and uh, developing a, a strong addiction to to alcohol. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing it must have been very scary to come see me, an older male doctor. I mean, exactly the the profile of the person who assaulted you. Yeah. I, I was super nervous. But I, 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 I talked to my therapist about it. And I trusted her. I remember... Um, I told you my, my story and you had, uh, immediately offered to, to open the door to your office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that made me feel you know, relaxed. Yeah. But it was harder, you know, walking into that, into your office being like the strong sense of like, don't do it. You know, you got, you got yourself put here once. Mm-hmm. You know, don't, don't put yourself, make yourself vulnerable like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember us leaving the door open. I also, I think I remember that you were wearing sunglasses the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounded about and right. I remember you sitting as far away from me as possible <laughs> on the couch, which is fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think you that's were right. so, There was so much hypervigilance, so much fear, um, yeah, you looked so scared, so scared. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I pulled up, Mitch, I pulled up my note um, from that day. You and I first met February 3rd, 2017. And in my note, I wrote, quote, I wake up every morning wishing I wasn't alive. I think about the assault all the time. It's, it's like it happened last week. I still blame myself. Why didn't I stop it? Why'd I go why'd I go on that boat? And you talked about drinking up to twelve pack or twelve shots a night. You were so scared and so wrecked. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I also remember meeting you, <clears throat> excuse me, that first day and and thinking that you seemed like a, a perfect candidate to do MDMA therapy in the MAPS study. Yeah, I remember you you mentioned that and you were excited about it. And at that point, I was just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Whatever, that's not going <laughs> to... Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I, I meet you and I say, oh yeah, come, just, yeah, come back here, join the study and yeah, we'll give you this, uh, yeah, this rave yeah. substance and we'll <laughs> heal your PTSD. Yeah. So you were the first person that Karen, my co-therapist, and I worked with. And Mitch, you actually weren't in the study, as you remember. You were in the therapist training part of MAPS. And so in that um, part, Karen and I knew that you were getting MDMA, and you knew. So that's called open label, whereas most of the study, or the rest of the study is double blind placebo. But we knew that very first day coming in that you were actually going to get active drug you knew yeah. and yeah, I wonder if you could walk us through that what you remember about that very first day coming to my <laughs> office and Karen and I sitting with you to, to start doing that deep dive into trauma 
Yeah, I remember it was right around the end of December of, of 2017. And there was a long process, I remember, you know, screenings and sessions with you and Karen um, without any MDMA, just, I called them the speaking sessions, where it was just more of a traditional counseling type session where we would, we would talk about different things. And I remember I had a lot of doubt, disbelief, resistance to the whole thing, right? It was like I had tried a lot of things and I think I'd resigned myself to the fact that maybe this was just my life, that I would just, I would be lonely and sad and drink and just kind of eke by in an existence. Remember Beth driving me to your office in the morning and thinking like, I do not want to do this. I just, I want to, I do not want to think about this trauma. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go there. I don't want to, I don't want to think about that event anymore. Like, why am I, why am I taking a day off of work and doing all this? And it's probably not going to work anyway. And what if I take the MDMA and I don't even go back to that scene? What if, you know, I just spend the day (laughs) in my head running around at a rock concert or something? You know, what if, what if it's all for not? before I, I took the, the MDMA, uh, the pills, I come in pill f- form. Uh, Karen, you know, very calmly told me, you know, the MDMA is just a, a guide that the healing that you can feel is, is already in you. And the MDMA is just going to go through your through your body and help help you heal yourself. And I thought, oh, thanks, Karen, but there's there's nothing, there's no healing in this body anymore. You know, it's, it's just not not gonna happen. I think you and Karen encouraged me to, to you know, we refer to it as going under, where I would lay down on the couch in your office and. There was uh, eye shades and uh, earphones and just listen to the music and just to see what came up. And I remember being like, great, like, you guys wouldn't tell me what the music was all about. So I was like, great, I'm going to miss work all day and you guys are going to make me listen to freaking Enya or something <laughs> all day. And I'm just going like, to... And Yanni. Yeah, and Yanni. It's like, yeah. great. You know, this is... This is not what I want right now. <laughs> but actually, the that whole part of it, the music, um, is uh, such an, an important component of the whole experience. And it seemed like the music was choreographed to uh, different stages of how the MDMA would work. So at first... I remember music being very light and, I guess, bouncy. And I remember laying on your couch, 
And it was like, I never hallucinated. Like I never wasn't, my mind was altered and I was going somewhere else that I wasn't or seeing things. I just remember when I was on the couch with the eye shades, uh, just different visions would, would come and I'd be laying there and all three sessions were essentially the same in that they started out with this light and bubbly music and uh, the first person I would would find, you know, in my in my eye, in my mind would be would be Beth. The dogs were there and Beth was there and we were doing like this weird dance, but we weren't dancing together. We were, you know, in the jungle or something and like uh, Beth was behind like one tree and I was like behind another and we were like doing this little peekaboo thing and there was like <laughs> you know a dog running around both of us and it was just this real uh, uh, real funny thing and then you know the way it worked my mind just I found myself with uh, Beth on like a, on a, on a boat and I was abused on a on a boat, and, and I feel like I'd been stuck on that boat for twenty two years. And you know, it wasn't the same boat at first. It was the um, uh, more of like a a party boat <laughs> <laughs> at first in my mind, and you know, the dancing and kind of lightness continued, and then the music changed, and it got a little more somber. I could feel myself uh, you know, tensing up, like present day in your office on the MMA, the kind of tensing up, and my my body knew that uh, it had to go back to that boat where I where I was when I was 15, and I remember Beth said, you know, it's very gently. Do you want me to? to go with you. And I said, yeah, let's, let's go. Let's go to the boat. At that time, I, I may have took off my eye shades and, and looked up at you and Karen and said, holy shit, we're going to the boat. Like, mm. like it happened really. Yeah, I remember that. Really quickly. It was just like, you know, I remember having a fear, like, what if I don't, what if it doesn't help? What if I don't, what if I don't go there? And I think at that time when Beth said, let's, you know, and she didn't push me or tell me I had to go. She just said, you know, it was more of a, I'm here if you want to go to the boat. And I remember thinking, well, like Karen was right, like the healing is is in there and leading up to our sessions you had told me that how mdma works that it dials down the fear and allows you to revisit that experience with uh, in a safe uh, manner and i i remember <laughs> there's no way mm -hmm. there's no way that fear is going to get dialed down where i'll ever go on that boat willingly let alone bring somebody else on there with me yeah and i remember being so fascinated that your inner healer your inner healing intelligence 
knew what you needed to go back on that boat was you needed Beth. Yeah. And you know, some really powerful uh, things happened during that first that first session, that even that first morning. Um, this abuse happened on a on a houseboat uh, in October of 1995 in, in Pittsburgh, and. It was, I had spent the day on the boat with this, this guy and his family. And I call him this guy now because one of the things that came out of the study was I still called him doctor by his last name, still in my head, doctor. And you said during one of the sessions, like, we don't call him doctor. He doesn't get that level of, um, he, he's not a doctor. Doctors heal people. So I remember spending the day with this guy and his family on the boat and then went to his house um, for dinner and then he was going to take me home, but we ended up going back to, to the boat. We ended up back there at the night and uh, he took me into the bedroom and... Uh, Again, my recollection is that it was under this disguise of like self-care. I needed to to be uh, cared for, and I remember at that point, my all of my sensors are like, "This is this what is going on here?" You know, is very scared. And uh, you know, he abused me, and I uh, I froze. I froze and it, it happened. And as soon as it was done, I remember throwing him, I threw him off of me and gathered up my clothes and tried to get out of the bedroom on the boat. And it was super dark. I think he purposely turned off all the lights so that people wouldn't be like, oh, what's this? one light on in this one boat out on the marina. And I remember struggling for what seemed like an eternity to unlock that bedroom door. And I just remember being so fearful, like, here I am out on this river, out on this Marina, I don't, it's like a maze to get back to the land, to the shore. Like, what the hell do I do? There's nobody around. So I remember I had my clothes in my hand and trying to get this damn door unlocked and I couldn't do it. And I was struggling and he was getting dressed and he was becoming very agitated at the, you know, I think wasn't his first victim and I don't think he'd ever had anybody kind of challenge him like that and he was pleading with me to stop and uh, yelling and finally he was able to get the door unlocked and running across a series of bridges to get back to the shore and finally made it to a there was a house 
not too far away. It's the only kind of light that I could see. So I remember running to the house and knocking on the door. <laughs> and just, uh, <laughs> I'm sure those people, I think about them now, like, here it is, you know, nine o'clock on a Sunday night. And there's a knock at the door and there's this 15-year-old kid with no clothes on. And <laughs> what that must have been like for them. And, mm. So in that first session, the MDMA session, um, I remember Beth saying, let's, let's go to the boat. And it's like, <laughs> okay, let's go to the boat. I hadn't let anybody else into that boat in 20 plus years. Nobody's ever gone there with me. And one of my clearest memories from that first session was Beth was in that room with me and nobody else had ever, even in my mind, gone to that room. And I remember she was holding my hand and I was looking up at her and we were making eye contact. And Well, he was doing his thing and it was, you know, I showed her what happened, but it was okay. She was there and we were looking at it, you know, each other. And then her and I practiced for what seemed like, uh, I don't know, when you're on the MDMA, it's hard to keep track of time. So it seemed like in my mind's eye for an hour or two, Beth and I sat there and we practiced unlocking the door we practiced unlocking the door we practiced again and then we practiced and then we practiced some more i'd get stuck and frustrated and she would say no here this is how you do it it's okay and so as i laid there and looked into her eyes and she you know held me there was i remember really somber sad music playing on my earphones and then uh, when he was done, she said, let's go. And I was able to shed that feeling of being stuck in that room on that boat because I was able to more quickly just unlock that door and, and get away. And that was so so freeing in so many ways that somebody else was in that boat with me other than him and somebody I had a, a guide and showing you how to get out and get out quickly yeah yeah and just to let somebody else kind of feel uh, you know see see into there you know I, Obviously, Beth wasn't there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, actually, on the boat, but in my mind, it was it was she was it was mm -hmm. able to go back and mm -hmm. have that. Yeah, I remember when you were describing this, Mitch. That I thought, who would ever guess that this is how 
your inner healing intelligence would work, that you would go back into the burning building of your trauma, back onto the boat with your wife <clears throat> who's with you and accompanying you and then helping you figure out how to escape quickly. But then I also thought, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. Of course, like that's a perfect way to go back in and that you just went there. Yeah, I remember by like <laughs> lunch on that first MDMA <laughs> session, I was like, I I had, I was a believer. I was like, wow, I had accomplished more uh, in those first half of that first session than I had thought would ever come about uh, through any of the, you know, through all three MDMA sessions. It was just, Mm-hmm. It was like, wow, I went back on that boat, you know, it's yeah. like, and it's crude. I look back on it, it's, just, it's, it's, uh, I'm able to laugh now because it's like all of that skepticism and mm-hmm. doubt that I had mm-hmm. just were <laughs> quickly, uh, quickly vanished. And I, I, there's a sense of when you're on the MDMA to just, you have to just give into it, right? There was a very much a, a sense of that, that statement that Karen made that it's in there and it, that healing is in there and this MDMA is just going to allow you to do it. You, there were certain times where throughout the study, I was like, I can't go there still. I can't. And it's like anytime you have that resistance, it's just like, okay, you have to go. Mm-hmm. put the eye shades on, listen mm-hmm. to the music and just see what comes up. It's whatever comes up is supposed to come up. Yeah. So you, <clears throat> we had given you the instructions multiple times each session, not to try to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And was that your memory too, that you just tried to be just sort of open-minded and, and f- just see what came up? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that first session really was the, was the key because I, I, I went into it and I didn't really, I was on that boat before I even knew, mm-hmm. um, before I could even make up my mind to not go or to go. It just mm-hmm. happened. Uh, my mind just, it went there. It knew what it needed to do. And so at that point, I, you know, I remember taking the eye shades off. I mean, like, I think I looked at you at one point and said, I think this shit's working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting to me as, as a co-therapist to, to look and see that where your inner healing intelligence went first was safety, that you had to rework this idea that and feeling that you're trapped on the boat mm-hmm. 22 years later versus going in and saying, no, you're not on the boat anymore. You can make a quick exit. You have loving guidance. Um, yeah. It's in the past. Yeah. Yeah, that was huge. The safety part of it was huge. One of the common features of people who've been abused as children is this sense of deep sense of guilt and shame that 
that person thinks that I was somehow partially or fully responsible. And you did some amazing work with the medicine to start to work through your guilt that somehow you were at fault or it could have been different. Yeah. The shame was... uh, I think that was what was really killing me the... the, for all those years. Just the sense of... I should have known. Why didn't I know? Why did... Why didn't I fight harder? How did I let it get to this spot? Right. So much that my therapist and I, like, we came up with this <laughs> this idea of uh, this like alter ego of like, if somebody came to me now, a 15-year-old boy came to me and said, and basically told my story to me, you know, my therapist said, well, what would you say? Would you say, you know, yeah, you should have stopped it. You should have known, you know and we'll talk more about this. You know, she, she goes, what would you name this person? What would you name this? And me not being very creative, I said, well, I'd name him Double Standard. <laughs> <laughs> so the sense of double standard was really prevalent throughout my life of, yeah, maybe it's okay for somebody else to not know, but I, sh- I should have known, I should have stopped. And you learn a lot about fight or flight response, but... I feel like my body froze on that boat is one one way that the shame really took hold of like you didn't fight you didn't you didn't you just laid there you didn't you didn't yell or scream until afterwards earlier that year in 1995 I come down with like the flu or strep throat or something like that and I remember my it was like a Saturday and my family my dad drove me to go see this guy to try to get some medicine and it was like you know he saw me on a saturday which i thought was kind of weird and you know my kind of brought me into the exam room and you know there wasn't how you want to describe it but there was definitely like inappropriate touching i was like hey, i'm here for because i have the freaking flu man like why are you you know, making me take my clothes off and lay on your, on your exam table. I just remember being like, oh, that's really like, you know, here's a family friend. It's like, I'm not going to say anything. He's a, he's a doctor. Like maybe he's, maybe, I don't know. I don't know anything about medicine. Maybe there's, he's checking this something. I don't know. You know. My dad's right there. What's, you know, on the other side of the, in the waiting room, what's going to, you know, so I just didn't say anything about it. Just like that. Oh, it was weird. Kind of blew it off. But then after the boat, you just kind of like, damn. You should have known. You should have known. You should have caught all of that warning. And there, there was another incident where there was a, you know, a plane crash. I remember when I was in high school. Uh, and he called me like the next day. And again, like now I can look back at it with a clear mind because of the MDMA. Right? He called me the next day. I remember, and he was like, "Hey, just want to make sure everything's okay," because my house was by the by the airport in Pittsburgh and he, he called he's like you know I'm not that far away I just want to see if you need anything I can stop by and I was like no I'm you know okay I'm fine you know but 
it was like those kind of previous points of contact with him that after the boat, it's like, you should have freaking known. My memory is that, that this came up a lot in the second session. Yeah. Is that right? That yeah. You st- this, that you started, again, remembering vividly these antecedents. You know, And as I pointed out, I said, Mitch, you were groomed. Yeah. Like it was, this was a very carefully thought out process and right. that, that had, n- you'd never been able to go back and put the pieces together that. One of the most amazing things that I remember about that whole session, it was like the, the cosmos all aligned. We were talking about this, um, this concept of, as you call it, being groomed. And that was a term I'd never heard before. You know, just even knowing that there's a terminology for it was, uh, you know, in, in a way healing. Like, oh, there's a, like, no, this happens. It's like, a thing. It's a yeah. thing. Like, these, these, this happens. And but I remember, I mean, I, I could never have gone back there to unpack even these uh, prior encounters with him without the MDMA. I mean, my body had just completely blocked all of that out for for decades for years i mean it was like you couldn't no way why would i go back to that spot i just i I couldn't like i couldn't do it um but on the mdma you could you could go back and look at it with a uh, an objective lens objective view and i remember i took off the eye shades and we were talking about this concept of grooming and you were really helping me develop this idea. And I just, I mean, it was like the feeling in the room was like, I remember it being hot and like we were doing work, mm-hmm. you know, we were doing some serious work and I was shedding so much shame. And you said something to the effect of you were just a, you know, he came in and, and took you, you were just a cub and I said, holy shit, I remember it. I said, I remember the day my mom dropped me off at the marina to go on the boat. I remember clear as day, he said, how's mama bear this morning? And for some reason from that MDMA session, that that tied up that whole discussion that you and I and Karen were having about being groomed and about how this wasn't my fault. And I just remember being like that sick bastard, like, Mm-hmm. he knew like just but the ability to have that memory come back because I could go back there was so powerful right it, it allowed me to go back and see and I remember that I remember uh, you know uh, my mom and I were very very close and she was going through a bad divorce with my dad I remember like I was always kind of close to her and I remember kind of very graphically, like this vividly, like this sense of like I'm walking up to meet him on that day. And I think like I have my, you know, probably like have my arm around my mom or something, you know, like I'm attached. And he's like, how's mama bear today? Like he just, mm. he, he freaking came into the den and knew what he was doing. Yeah. And he knew, he knew that mama bear was distracted, getting divorced. Um, yeah, this was not able to fully protect her cups. Yeah. Yeah. It's so sick. Right. Such a violation of, I mean, obviously my, 
my trust, but also like my family's, you know, and I, and I struggled with that. It's something that came up repeatedly in our sessions is like, what, what role did my family play in all of this? You know, and, you know, I think the facts in some ways speak for themselves that I fell, I fell through the cracks, right? Mm-hmm. That this was allowed to happen. But the MDMA also brought on a tremendous sense of wanting to reconnect that and not, not hold, put blame where it was supposed to be. Yeah. Not, not on my family. Certainly my family never intended uh, for this to happen. They never, and I'm sure that they had their own uh, immense feelings of guilt and responsibility. Yeah. I was so impressed with the work you did, especially in that second session around fully putting 1000% of the blame on yeah. The one person, which actually brings me to one of our fav- my favorite memories of our work together is when, you know, in a lot of ways, his name was like Voldemort. It couldn't be spoken. Right. Was that in the second session <laughs> yeah, where exactly. we actually all started yelling his name? Yeah. Fuck, yeah. fuck you, whatever his name <laughs> yeah. is. And we all, the three of us just yeah. all yelled that together. Yeah. Yeah. It was like for decades, I was so, I was bearing the brunt, like in this completely twisted way. It's like I was letting him off the hook because I was taking all the, the brunt of all the shame and like I did something wrong. And it was like just those words, you know, mama bear, just like, and certainly there was a lot more work to it than that, but I just remember like that encapsulates the the feeling of like, no, like Mm -hmm. that, like it, it, you know, that showed in my mind the intent Mm -hmm. and the, the, uh, the malintent, the, 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 the cruel intent to, he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Do you think it was after that second session that you were mostly able or fully, mostly fully able to, to flush the guilt or did it take longer? It took a little longer. Um, in my third uh, session was super, super powerful. And at that point we'd had two really amazing sessions. I remember being like, well, what's left on the third <laughs> session? They're like, we've got this thing whipped. Like we don't, there's, there's nothing really left to, to talk about. Yeah. I was thinking that too, driving to that third session. What are we going to do? Yeah. Maybe we should just take off our blindfold and yeah. have a dance party. Yeah. Or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but a couple of things happened in that third session that were really, uh, I think, massive shifts. Throughout this whole process, uh, maybe I'll just mention this and then we can go back to it, is this, this idea that I connected with my 15-year-old self. And there were some beautiful moments that came out. But I had this like ongoing dialogue with the 15-year-old my 15-year-old self, and it was awesome. It was incredible. And I could read him and talk to him and hear from him. And, and this was your 15-year-old self just prior to the assault? 
Yeah, or after the assault. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times it was after the assault of like, hey, you know, you've you you've been suffocating me for years and shaming me, and like, you know, you're you're, you're hurting me now. Still, you're by by holding on, you're blaming me. Going back on the MDMA allowed me to kind of visit with him, and I could tell in that third session that he wasn't totally either he or my present day self weren't totally convinced on the idea that. No, we were totally, totally without blame. I'm a lawyer now, and I remember thinking on that third session, like talking to my 15 year old self, like, "What's 15 year old Mitch? You know, what's gonna, what's gonna, what's gonna seal the deal? Like, how, how, how do we do this?" And it was like, "We're gonna have a trial," <laughs> <laughs> and that in and of itself was very symbolic because I never had a. You know, I, that night on the boat, I, I ran and I went to the uh, the house at the marina and uh, went and filled out a police report. And there was a, a, a lawsuit and criminal proceedings, but there was a settlement. And so there was never a, an actual trial uh, on the on the merits of the case. It was just a, the judge heard the settlement and approved it. And that in and of itself was very... You know, contributed to that shame of like, well, why didn't I, if I was so convinced in my position, I would have, I would have fought, right? I would have went to, had an open trial and you and I and Karen talked a lot about that. And the conclusion I came to is as an attorney today, present day, I would have told my 15 year old self, no, you did the right, you absolutely did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, did this trial happen with the eye shades on? Yeah, this trial happened with the eye shades on, and you were you were the the judge and the the jury. And I remember, <laughs> and we presented all the facts, and I held fifteen year old Mitch's hand throughout it, and it was like here, like here's all the here's all the evidence, and we went through it all, starting from the beginning, and the the, the verdict was clear, like <laughs> mm-hmm. completely. Uh, you know, fifteen-year-old Mitch was completely absolved of any any wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. That he was actually uh, to be to be celebrated for how he, yeah, for what he did. That he uh, he, he he kept it safe, and then when the window uh, appeared, he he ran the safety, and he didn't let this uh, this person get away with it. He held him held him yeah. accountable. How perfect was that, that in this third and final MDMA <laughs> session that your your inner healer knew you needed a trial? Yeah. <laughs> there had to be a trial. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, that's funny. I was the judge and jury. Yeah, you were. <laughs> Tell me, Mitch, a little bit about the role of touch in the study. Now, one of the things that um, all the therapists in the MAPS study do is we talk to people extensively about um, touch, that um, touch has to be initiated by the participant, that touch should always be non-sexual. Touch can be a powerful part of the healing, but it also can be very, very frightening. And given that to get in the study, people have... um, physical and sexual abuse often. So what, how did that evolve for you? <laughs> I'm laughing because I remember during one of the, 
before MDMA, you know, or experimental sessions, it was, you, you, you told me that, that, you know, you and Karen both mentioned, well, touch can be very healing when you're on the MDMA. And I just remember being like, these people are crazy. Like, there's no way I'm going to like, um, that I will, no matter what happens, get the urge to, to have, you know, some sort of touch, <laughs> you know? And when that was, I think symbolic of just, my life since I was 15 is like, I never let anybody uh, touch me. I never, you know, physical contact for me was very, very scary, very, uh, you know, triggering in some, some cases. And even with my, my wife, tr you know, touch can be a scary, scary thing. And so I was like, yeah, okay. Like I'm going to take this MDMA and all of a sudden we're going to just, you know, be hugging it out. <laughs> But I can think of at least two, two incidents, two incidents of where touch was very, very powerful. I think it was our second session. Karen locked, uh, I say locked. She 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 locked fifteen-year-old uh, Mitch inside my chest, and it was uh, maybe one of the most beautiful parts of all three sessions. Yeah, she she was encouraging me to f to see like is there a place in my body where he he lived? You know, can I where can I keep him where I wanted to I wanted to connect with 15-year-old Mitch and I said I think he's in my chest. And you know, throughout the study we had this beautiful reconnection of events that happened when I was 15 and later that really started putting all the pieces together as to you know, that summer after that event happened, I came and visited one of my brothers who lived here in town, and I felt safe, and it was sunny, and there was, uh, you know, he had a, a dog, and I realized, oh, I love, I love labs, and I love hiking, and I love being outdoors, and it kind of, you know, my body knew at that time, like, oh, this feels good, this feels safe, and there's this, this constant conversation through the MDMA sessions with present day Mitch and 15 year old Mitch. And in the second session, I started having this anxiety of like, well, you know, how do I keep him? How do I keep him close now? Like now that I found him, I don't want him to go. I don't want to lose him anymore. I mean, like a sense of, oh my gosh, I've been suffocating and hurting this 15 year old version of myself. Like, and he's really, he's done nothing wrong. He was great. And, you know, this, uh, this predator did this to him. You know, how do I, how do I keep him safe? And I, so Karen was saying, you know, think about where he can live. Or, you know, where do you feel him in your body? And I felt him in my chest. And I just remember asking Karen, I was like, I can't, I can feel him in there, but I don't want him to get out. And I asked Karen, I said, can you? put your hand on my chest and lock him in there so he doesn't get away. And I just remember sitting there on your couch and the music was perfect. And Karen just put pressure with her hands on my chest. 
No, we didn't say anything. You know, when you're under the MDMA, you don't hallucinate, but it gives... It can give... People and objects sort of a bluish halo around them, and I remember I peeked under my eyeshade, and I looked up at Karen, and she has like long gray hair, and it looked kind of blue at that moment. And she just remembers like very much like an angel, just with her hands on my on my chest just uh, locking him in there again I don't know how long we were in that in that position but it seemed like for a long time and that's I think that I needed that touch to um, really feel secure like in my mind on Nimnimea there was this physical melting of 15 year old Mitch just melting into my into my body like we were we were reunited again and Karen helped seal that yeah that was such a beautiful yeah beautiful moment yeah that was a that was an incredible incredible memory of being able to feel whole again and connected and that my life had purpose and history and mm -hmm. it wasn't just that I walked on that boat and then anything in between that and the present day um, didn't exist it started to have meaning again mm -hmm. and it worked yeah K Karen sealed the 15 year old you inside of you inside of your heart yeah still to this day I can feel him you know and I <laughs> I find myself tapping my chest and be like hmm there he is you know I can kind of <laughs> kind of feel him mm -hmm. I think the other part of of the touch was on that last MDMA session when we had had that trial there was this lingering feeling of double standard and this like ego like what what was he what what purpose did he serve mm -hmm. and I remember I was it was approaching the end of the third session, and I was like it's I'm not going to be able to crack what this is all about. I just have to you know it's kind of like one of the unanswered questions that I'll just have to wrestle with after the MDMA and Karen was so gentle and she just said, give it another shot. Like go put your eyeshades on and just see what, what's coming up. See, see what's, see what's happening. And I remember I went back in and you know, this just really took, it just really tied a lot of the whole experience together of, of what was going on. And it was, I remember this, this, this what I call double standard appeared you know, shortly after that abuse. And it was this idea that, hey, you should never be the center of attention. You should never be weak. Like you were weak once and needed attention. And you got 
you, you put yourself in a bad situation. So me, this this ultra vigilant protector is going to come into your life and it's going to keep people away. And it's going to keep you strong to everybody else and nobody fucks with you and nobody messes with you. And you're going to do that and not going to let anybody in because you let somebody in and look, you don't have the you don't have the wherewithal to judge character anymore. Look, look what happened. Right. You liked that 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 attention that you got from this this guy when you were 15, right? You you liked that. And it was like, yeah, you know, I did like that. I thought it was genuine. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that it wasn't and so it was a complicated relationship with this idea of double standard because he, he he came into my life as a protector, but he was also strangling me from the kind of the outside world. It was, you know, his his goal was to protect me so it didn't happen again, but it was also causing me a lot of shame, still placing the blame on me, and also keeping me from having a lot of meaningful relationships with other people because he wouldn't let me, you know, it's like, no, you can't let people get close to you. Don't, you not even let your wife get near you. Like, and so we found where he, he lived and we found this idea that, you know, that's where he came from. Of, you know, 15 year old Mitch fell for it and he liked the attention that he felt that it was genuine and it, and it wasn't. So this protector is going to come in and keep you safe. And, uh, I remember when that happened, it was late in the day in your office and you had that great window in your office and it was snowing. And Karen recommended that we do some more kind of touch body work or whatever. And I just remember laying on your office floor, looking out the window and it was snowing and I let you, uh, um, this idea of good touch came up. And we wrote it about it extensively in my journal. And I, I, I held your hand on my chest. Mm-hmm. And I was on my back. And I remember being like, wow. Last time I was on my back in this position and a doctor was touching me, it went very bad. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking that... That was me, like, reclaiming my life back. Like, no, I have that ability to to determine for myself what what good touch is. Yeah. And I can keep myself safe. And I just, the energy in the room was incredible. I think Karen was stretching on my legs or something like that and you and I were just sitting on the floor I was laying on the floor and you were sitting next to me with your hand on my chest and I just held it and I just remember being like I think for the first time in 22 years I felt a sense of peace and calm Mm -hmm. yeah that was that was one of the most beautiful things I've ever been a part of City. I remember yeah, snowing and and just the three of us on the floor and holding your hand and and just being so grateful. Yeah, so grateful. 
And I cry now as we're talking about it. But it's not like a sad cry. It's just like a a grateful, like, holy shit, we did that kind yeah. of cry. Yeah. And honestly, you know, for most of my adult life, um, when things were hard, or even when they weren't hard, but they were good, I would be back on that boat all the time, stuck in that room, not able to get the door locked, unlocked. And now, <laughs> I don't ever really go back there. I go to your office to one of those scenes where your hand is on my chest uh, and we're listening to, to music and there's good touch or Karen locking 15-year-old Mitch into my chest. It's like my whole brain has been kind of reprogrammed. It's like a, there's a new a new starting point. You know, yeah. instead of the starting point going back to the boat, it's back to your office. Yeah. <laughs> and my memory is right around the, this time on the floor in the last session. I think then, then you got back up on the couch and the soundtracks that we have through maps and, and that Karen made are don't have English words, but do you remember when <laughs> Beatles Here Comes the Sun came on? Oh, yeah. And we all listened to that really loudly and uh, sang along with it Yeah, at the end of the third session. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that was amazing. It was like, like I said, I was like, and the music was great throughout the whole session. I, I told you I joked. That, that no like Yanni. No, 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 no Yanni. No. Listening to Enya for three freaking days. <laughs> but for, it was really I really, the music was perfect, but mm. the, particularly Here Comes the Sun, I just remember being like, it was like, uh, I wish I had the words to describe it. It just, it felt like it, it was, uh, I had like a new chance at life. Yeah. It was, it was, it was yeah. so healing. And I remember too at the end, I think this was maybe true at the end of the second, but for sure that end of the second and third sessions that you and Karen could give each other such a loving, beautiful hug. And you and me too. Yeah. I, I didn't, I, that to me was the most striking thing that you, that you wanted to hug me and that we could just yeah. hold each other and just cry. Yeah. 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 It's now two years since you did this work with MDMA and Karen and me. Um, where are you in your life now? Where are you with PTSD and with fear and with trust? And mm -hmm. how are you? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I'll be honest. It. it uh, I, I. I do feel that the. That the MDMA is such a powerful, powerful tool that I, I never would have gotten to this spot in my in my life. This this rebirth, this feeling that you know, the blame got rightly put where it needed to be. I would never have been able to remember Mama Bear. I never would have been able to 
reconnect with 15-year-old Mitch and put him in my chest without the MDMA. It's still there, uh, those events in my life. Um, right, the MDMA, it doesn't erase your memory as to those events. But it, boy, it's, it, it, I just remember going through all that and being able to put the pieces back together. And you and I are talking like, no, your story like makes sense. Like mm-hmm. it actually makes sense. It's not a, a good story that you want, right? You, you don't want to have to experience that type of trauma in your life. But it makes sense. I was able to make sense of it. It's still there and I still um, have memories of it that, that aren't pleasant for sure. But I can tell you that I I can watch a, a a Steelers game or a Pirates game and I can see the rivers and I can have a lot of pride in where I came from. I don't attach so much to uh, that episode that, that on the boat that, that no longer defines me. Mm-hmm. And that's so powerful. I, I mean, I got off the freaking boat yeah. and I couldn't have done that without the MDMA. I got off the freaking boat. I think I told you... And Karen, in one of our first, you know, talking sessions, that even if I became the president of the United States, like I would still be a fifteen-year-old boy on a boat in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, yeah, that's part of my story, but that ain't the whole story. And um, I feel, in some ways, you know, I'll say normal now. That's certainly not the, um, by normal, I mean, I'm able to handle the ups and downs of life without this <laughs> huge anchor that I've been towing for so long, without this cloud that's always following me. It's like, yeah, like other shit in life happens and it comes and goes, but it's not like other shit happens and you got PTSD and it just sends you over the edge. Mm-hmm. Um and when you say, and you said this to me before, when you say it wasn't my fault, like you can feel I, that I, with yeah. every ounce of your being. Yeah, I, f- I feel that with uh, every ounce of my being. You know, I uh, unfortunately, you know, my my marriage to Beth did not uh, survive, and I think I did too much damage to to that relationship. Um, but to this day, she's. Uh, you know, one of my dearest and best friends. She was my my guide through the whole MDMA sessions, and um, so that's it's a sad outcome. I think a lot of uh, people that are are abused as, as children have uh, issues with uh, relationships, and you know, I'm proud that her and I are still very very close friends and take uh, what I what I've learned um, from that relationship going forward. And I, I just, um, I'm grateful for, for her. And, um, you know, there's other, other good things. There's uh, good things in life. I'm able to find, find joy um, more readily. I'm, I'm more, f- more present. I feel more, definitely more self-love of uh for myself and 15 year old 15 year old mitch yeah and i I can 
tell you, Mitch, and I've said this to you a number of times before, having known you before, during, and after, now two years post-MDMA treatments, it's like you're reborn. Yeah. I mean, you, the presence, the confidence. Um, I mean, when I met you, you were, you were on high alert. I mean, the smoke alarm of your nervous system was blaring hundred decibels 24 seven. And you just have a lightness about you now and a warmth and just, yeah, just a, a piece that yeah. I, I didn't ever see before. Yeah. Yeah. I feel it. I feel that for sure. I, I think too, and one thing that I've carried with me is throughout all of it is that there, I think when you're abused, you, you may take on a, a strong sense of compassion for others. You know, I can remember it. right around the time we were going through the MDMA study, it was like a lot of the Catholic church stuff was going on. It's like, man, that's just like really, really hard to hear. Mm-hmm. And for anybody, but particularly when you're a victim of abuse, it's hard to hear. And I think before hearing stories like that would just completely just, that would shut me down for a while. Like that's a, you drink a lot and escape it. And now I've, you hear those stories in the news and it's still there and you have that deep sense of compassion, but it doesn't, it doesn't rock me like it used to. It doesn't, you know, I remember hearing about the, the widespread you know, latest round of abuse and it's like, we're going to need a lot of MDMA for, <laughs> for these, for these folks, you know, like yeah. there is, it gave me more of like hope for, 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 for treatment, for, for other victims yeah. like it's 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 very very powerful yeah i think one thing that stuck with me is uh, since our session is just a tremendous amount of, of gratitude um for you for karen for for maps um and i just i i've never met anybody from maps and to, to think that there's people out there that who've dedicated their lives to helping people like me um, makes me feel fortunate. Yeah. Very gives cool. you hope, hope, yeah. hope yeah. for the world. Yeah. yeah. Tons of hope. And, uh, you know, when this, when I finished my last session, I was able to write out my whole story. Uh, and I think I started it off of the very fact that I can write this story down on paper is because of the, of, of you, Dr. Craig and, Karen and my therapist and uh, particularly the people at MAPS who, who, who do this work and, and uh, yeah it's, uh, it's amazing if you like this episode please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story check out our website bftapodcast.com where you can learn more about us and this project, get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories, as well as additional resources and music credits. You can also email us with comments or story requests. If you have time, please rate us on iTunes, as this helps us spread these stories far and wide. 
Much gratitude to my good friend Chris Johnson, who does our sound. And thank you for listening to Back from the Abyss. May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness.